And Father in heaven, thank you for that beautiful prayer that Drew and prayed. Lord, my heart was lifted to, to the very gates of heaven through that prayer. And Father, I love the humility in that prayer. I love the simplicity in that prayer and the honesty in that prayer. Father, if it hadn't been for the Adventist educational system, if it hadn't been for the, for the faithful staff and, and the church here of Tweed Valley Adventist College, we wouldn't have Druin praying these beautiful prayers in our sanctuary, bringing us, leading us right to your throne. And so, Father, I thank you for Druin. I just pray you would continue to grow him into a powerful man of God. And I thank you for TVC, TVAC. Father, may that continue to grow into a powerful school, an institution that is used not just for educating, but for building people for eternity. Father, now as we look to Scripture, may you by the Spirit look to us. Father, we're continuing our journey with Jonah, and I pray that you would take away any distractions, anything that would cause us to lose focus on the text. Father, we spend the whole week thinking about so many things that are of no consequence, inconsequential, insignificant, and in the, in the long term, picture of our lives will amount to nothing. So, Father, when we have that opportunity to come together and to really think on eternal things, help us to be focused, help us to be attentive. Father, may your Spirit come and do a work here that is greater than the work that a, a preacher could do or a man could do, that elocution could do. Father, may there be something supernatural today that transpires. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Did they already announce the Scent Concert? Okay, just a quick word for those of you that were planning on going to the Scent Concert. You know it's on tonight at 5.30. And if you weren't planning on going, then you're welcome to come. 5.30, and I think the concert's at 7. 7. And uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of people singing some really beautiful songs. Violetta and I are going to sing a couple songs, and so I can't wait. It's going to be really fun. All right, let's open to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 3. And I realize I left my clicker down here. Jonah and the third chapter. We're in now the second half of the book of Jonah. We continue our series in the Felly of Abish. Let me get there with you. Jonah. Okay, Jonah chapter 3. This is part five of our seven-part series. We're in scene four, and our sermon today is titled, Like Father, Like Son. Like Father, Like Son. So we've grayed out the first half of the book of Jonah. We're through all of chapters 1 and 2 and the first three scenes. And we've noted on several occasions the tremendous symmetry in the book of Jonah. You have two halves and three virtually identical scenes. The setup, the build-up, the speak-up. We now transition out of the first half and into the second half. We're in Jonah chapter 3, just three verses today. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. We're reading that in just a moment. Now, let's sort of orient ourselves to something that we noted in the second sermon in our Feli of Abish series, and that is the prophetic call and how the call of Jonah follows pretty closely a fairly consistent prophetic template. And this isn't the case in every prophetic call, but it is the case in enough of them that Bible students and scholars have noted and said, hey, look, there's a pattern There's a template that's going on here, and you'll notice it uh, here on the screen. We've looked at this before, but let's just remind ourselves. When a prophetic call or a call of commissioning is extended by God to one of his prophets, it often follows this basic sequence. There is the divine commission that is then followed by an objection to the commission. Of course, the classic example of this would be the call of Moses, where Moses is called and then he objects but I'm slow of speech, but, but I can't do it for a variety of reasons. So there's the objection. We see this not just in Moses' case and in Jonah's case, but also in Gideon's case and others. So there's the objection, followed by divine rebuke and then reassurance. That happened with Moses, happened with Gideon, also happened with Jonah. And then in these cases and others, that reassurance is followed by a miracle, a, a, a sign, a symbol that, hey, I'm God, I'm in control. In the case of Moses, what was that miracle that was right in the midst of the divine commissioning? What was that? Take your staff and do what with it? Throw it down and it became a fish. Or a fish, what am I saying? <laughs> what Bible am I reading? It became a snake, thank you, corrected by the young ladies in the front. It became a snake. Uh, he also placed his hand to his breast, and it became leprous, and then when he put it back, it was made whole. So that was the sort of sign. God's like, look, I'm in control. I'm in control. I gotcha. 
In the case of Gideon, does anybody remember the specific um, miraculous sign that accompanied Gideon's call and commission? It's where he took the fleece and he, he put the fleece out and he said, let the fleece be wet and the ground be dry. And then he reversed it. Let the ground be wet and the fleece be dry. Okay, and so we see that in the case of Jonah here, a symbolic act or a miracle has transpired. In the case of Jonah, it's what we talked about last week, that he was swallowed whole by a large sea creature and then regurgitated back onto dry land. Dry land. And that brings us to number five, where the commission is clarified. We're going to talk about that clarification here this morning and then ultimately carried out. And so we are right in the stream of what we would expect with the divine call and commissioning of Jonah as a somewhat reluctant prophet of Yahweh. We're in Jonah chapter 3. We're going to read the first three verses. In fact, that's all we're going to look at today, three short verses. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Okay, this clearly and unmistakably uh, introduces us to the second half of Jonah. Here we go. We're in the second part, scene 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. That's all we're going to look at today. Now you will notice, probably, if you've been with us in the series, just how remarkably similar the first three verses of chapter 3 are to chapter 1. Notice the first three verses of chapter 1. We've noted this similarity before, but let's just remind ourselves. Chapter 1, let's also read the first three verses there. And notice, they're basically verbatim. In fact, we're going to highlight five key similarities and five key differences between these three verses. See if you can note not only the similarities, that'll be easy, but as we read through, see if you can notice one or two or three of the differences between chapter 3 and chapter 1. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Okay. We're going to start by noting the similarities because that's the easiest and most obvious thing to see. First of all, the verses sound very similar, and we've noted before the tremendous symmetry and sophistication and organization of the book of Jonah. I mean, just every time we study, we're seeing, wow, look at, the, look at the thought that would have gone into that. We've looked at poems, we've looked at parallels, we've looked at, at recapitulations in the book. It's just absolutely fantastic. And here we have probably the most unmistakable parallel. It just basically is an almost verbatim repeat of the first three verses of the entire book. Now, you'll notice that one of the similarities that I actually didn't put up on the screen here is that we don't really have a sense of place. When Jonah is originally called, we don't know where he is. We don't really know the circumstances surrounding his call. And similarly here, all we know is that the fish has regurgitated Jonah onto dry land. We don't know the exact location. We're not told that. We're just, Jonah was on dry land. We've noted before those changes of scene from dry land to the sea to in the sea and then now back to dry land would give us a sense of of renewal and of starting afresh and beginning again, okay? So let's note the similarities here between chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. First of all, the word of Yahweh comes. That's how both sections open. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah. There's the first similarity. The second similarity is that it comes to the same prophet. In chapter 1, it comes to Jonah. In chapter 3, it comes to Jonah. And the words are the same. The very same words. Kum. Arise. Arise and go. Also, the location remains the same. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. And in both cases, Jonah arises. Okay? In chapter 1, he arises to flee, and in chapter 3, he arises to finally fulfill the original commission. And the, the reader has been waiting a long time to hear these words, that Jonah arose and went. We're two chapters into the book. It's almost like the first two chapters could have been totally avoided if Jonah had not arisen to flee, but he had arose to follow the word of Yahweh. And so notice what we have here. Same God, same person, same command, same place, same action. Okay, So the similarities between the opening of chapter 1 and chapter 3 are unmissable, absolutely unmissable. So the similarities are emphatic and essential 
in order to establish the basic symmetry of the book and, and, and the beauty of the book and, and the, the point of the book. But the differences between these verses are purposeful and profound. And we're going to take a look at five differences. So not only are there at least five similarities, there are at least five differences. And we're going to go through these point by point. The first is found right in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That's familiar Old Testament language. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to whatever the prophet might be. The word of the Lord in this case came to Jonah. But this is unique. This particular configuration is unique in the Hebrew Old Testament because it's the word of the Lord came to so-and-so a second time. The word of the, the very same word as we saw, same command, same place, same location, same everything, it now comes again, and we have the sense of being in a kind of loop. Hey, we've been here before. We've heard this before. And the writer of Jonah wants you to not miss it. This is the second time that the same call has come, and there are several things that jump out at us when we think about the word of Yahweh coming to Jonah a second time. The first is that Yahweh's character and his loving and saving intentions never change. Can somebody say amen? God loves us just enough to bring us back over the same ground that we failed on the first time. God has not changed. His intention has not changed. His mercy has not changed. His character has not changed. Jonah has changed significantly, but God has not. Often our actions prompt God to accommodate a new situation. Now, this is what we're going to talk about in significant depth, not next week, but the following week. Jonah's unwillingness to do what God had asked him to do, arise and go to Nineveh, creates a new situation. This new situation then forces, forces might not be the wrong word, but, but creates a situation in which Yahweh has to accommodate himself to the actions of his rebellious prophet. Now, we're going to see the exact negative of that when it comes to Nineveh because Jonah is going to go to Nineveh expecting for his preaching to not be heeded and not be heard, and Nineveh is going to change, and Yahweh will change in relationship to Nineveh's change. So this is very important to grasp. Yahweh in his basic intention, God in his love, God in his mercy, God in his character does not change. But God is in a continual state of change and of flexibility and of accommodation to the decisions that we make. Right? You take, for example, Jonah getting swallowed by the fish. This was not in God's plan. This is an accommodation to Jonah's rebellion. So when, when Jonah made a left, when God had asked him to make a right, God now has to accommodate Jonah's situation. Okay? This happens to us all the time. Often, our actions prompt God to accommodate a new situation, both in the negative, as with Jonah, but also in the positive, as we're going to see with Nineveh in a couple weeks' time. Now, this is a really cool idea. If God had not so wonderfully and so consistently accommodated us, we could not be saved. In the case with Jonah, as in the case with all of us, God's accommodation to our failure is the thing that brings about our salvation. If God had chosen not to accommodate himself to Adam and Eve's situation, not to accommodate himself to the need of fallen humanity's situation, we would not be saved. If God had remained absolutely committed to plan A, well, then we would be in big trouble. But if we go on plan B, God goes with us on plan B. If we go plan C, God goes with us in plan C. And at no point, whether we find ourselves at plan D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z, at no point, does God and his essential desire and love and mercy and intention change? God's actions will change. God's accommodations will be ever new. But God's intent in your life is always the same. He loves you and he wants to save you. Okay? So when we, when we see this here, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, you almost get the feeling that if Jonah had not gone along and had not finally risen and gone to Nineveh, that we would be reading chapter um, 5 that would say, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a third time. And then if that hadn't worked out, we'd be reading in chapter 7, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a fourth time, right? The idea here that God is accommodating himself to, in this case, the rebelliousness of his prophet. So that's one that just jumps out at us, major difference between chapter 1 and chapter 3. Here's the second one. This is a subtle one, and it's fascinating. You notice in chapter 1, I'll read in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. 
cry out against it. Did you notice this significant or significant but subtle difference? Chapter 3, verse 2. Now, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it. Is there a difference between cry out against it and pre- preach to it or proclaim to it? It's fascinating. In the, in the Hebrew, it's just the slightest shift of a preposition from al to el. It's, it's the equivalent of a single letter in, in the English language, from A to E. And yet the meaning is very different, substantively different, significantly different. The original call was to Jonah, go cry against that great city. Her wickedness has ascended before me. This call is different. Go to Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I will tell you. Now, there's several things that sort of jump out, jump out at us here. This subtle shift from cry out against versus proclaim to hints at Jonah's own mindset and actually foreshadows the Ninevites' unexpected response. We know that, that one thing that God is very good at, and that is that sp- He's good at speaking our language, whatever that language happens to be. We see instances of this with Jesus. For example, when Jesus was speaking to a woman at a well, he said, I will give you water and you will never thirst again. When Jesus met fishermen on the shores of the sea, he said, "Uh, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. When Jesus was speaking to a wealthy young man, he said, follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. Okay? We find again and again God's linguistic and communicative accommodation. He speaks our language. When God originally spoke to Jonah, He spoke the language of Jonah, and I'm going to suggest that this was language that wasn't even particularly God's language so much as it was God's language to Jonah in a way that Jonah would relate to it and understand it. In other words, there's not a lot of mercy in it. Let me just put my cards right out on the table. Go to Nineveh and cry out against it. She's a wicked city. Okay, there's not a lot of mercy there. There's, 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 not, there's no mercy that tempers the inevitable judgment. Of course God is going to judge Nineveh. It's a wicked, terrible, pagan, idolatrous, Gentile city. Go cry out against it. That's Jonah's language, and God accommodates that language. But here, when Jonah has himself become the recipient of Yahweh's tremendous mercy, having been a rebellious prophet, having ended up in the belly of a fish, having been miraculously regurgitated onto dry land, he has been bathed not only in the ocean, but he's been bathed in mercy. And God is hopeful that his own experience with mercy will flavor or season the way that he sees his mission to Nineveh. It's not now go to Nineveh and cry out against it. It's go to Nineveh and proclaim something to it. And the author has, with just the little shift of a single preposition, oriented us to an unexpected outcome. Any Jewish reader or, or, or person familiar with the, with the basic story of Assyria and their relationship to Israel would assume that Yahweh's, Yahweh's wrath would burn hot and vigorous against a pagan idolatrous city like Nineveh. Nobody expects that Nineveh is going to repent. That's not even in the cards. That's not on the table. That is, that is the furthest conceivable thing from a, a Jewish mind. These are pagan people. It's us and them, and they're a bad them. And so there's this little hint here. Don't just go cry against them, but go say something to them. All of a sudden, this adversarial and the suggestion of a hostility has been replaced by a kind of mutuality, a kind of, a, I'm here to tell you something. Number three, in both cases, Jonah arises. The call comes to arise, kum, arise. And in both cases, Jonah arises. In chapter one, he arises to flee from the presence of the Lord. In chapter three, he arises to go to Nineveh. He arose to flee and he arose and went to Nineveh. Oh, one more here. Number four, we'll link this in as well. He fled from Yahweh's presence and here he arises according to Yahweh's word. Several points here. First of all, Jonah is on a journey in the book of Jonah in more ways than one. He's on a literal journey. He's been deposited somewhere uh, on the dry land, and if he's anywhere near Joppa, where the starting point of his journey was, he has about a one-month, 900-kilometer journey to Nineveh. Okay, he's he's not going to catch a bus. He's not going to get on the plane. It's going to take him a month 
to travel that distance. So, so he's not only on a journey to sea and then finally now somewhat reluctantly to Nineveh. Jonah is on a journey in his thinking, in his mind, in his appreciation and experience with God's mercy. And I'm going to suggest that in a very cool way, we are all not only on a journey in terms of a geographical journey, a geometrical journey from space to space, space to space and place to place, we are all on a journey in terms of our own apprehension of God's goodness and his mercy and how that mercy and how God's unchanging, amazing character extends to those around us. Jonah is on a journey in more ways than one, and so are we all. Jonah at this stage is outwardly compliant with the call of Yahweh. But the question that is sort of simmering below the surface, if you read the text carefully, the question is, is Jonah's heart renewed at this point? Is this a reluctant compliance? How many of you would would be vulnerable enough and honest enough to say with me that there have been times in your walk with God, times in your religious experience where you have capitulated to something, you have gone along with something physically, externally, that was not really in your heart, but you knew it was the right thing, and doggone it, you were just going to do it. Can anybody relate to that? Yeah. This is Jonah. We encounter Jonah here not fully converted, not fully embracing Yahweh's merciful disposition toward himself and toward others, but a reluctant, frustrated, slightly annoyed prophet who is going to go do what he really doesn't want to do. He's on a journey, and he is not there. We mentioned this last week. We'll just briefly touch on it. In the belly of the fish, Jonah did pray. He cried out to Yahweh, and you might in a shallow reading of that, in a perfunctory reading of, Yahweh's, or of Jonah's prayer to Yahweh, you might think, oh, look, he's had a conversion experience. Look, he's turned it around. But we noted that there are numerous good reasons, textual reasons, to think that something is not quite there in his prayer. It was a prayer, but it was not quite there. Let's just go through them very quickly. Number one, it was a reluctant prayer, forced by being swallowed by a sea creature. Number two, there is no confession of wrong or of guilt or of sorrow anywhere in the prayer. It's not found. There's no clear request for forgiveness. The only possible, maybe a subtle hint at forgiveness is he says twice, I will pray to your temple. Number four, he acknowledges that he's in a dangerous situation, but he never acknowledges the cause of that situation. Many of us can no doubt relate to this. We talked about the inversion of the flood remembrance where Jonah in many ways is a recapitulation of the flood story. And in the Noah story, it says Yahweh remembered Noah. But in the Jonah story, it says Jonah remembered Yahweh as if the onus and the responsibility is upon Jonah to do that. And then finally, and this is most probably significant in the prayer, is Jonah's elevation of his own holiness and his own piety, he promises, when I get out of this fish, if and when I get out of this fish, I will pledge pledges, I will sacrifice sacrifices, I will vow my vows to you. And then he goes so far as to say, but the heathen forsake their mercy. Unbeknownst to Jonah, of course, because he's trapped in the belly of a fish, the people, the Gentile peoples on board the ship, the people that tried to row so hard to save Jonah and who only reluctantly threw him overboard have already done the thing that Jonah promises he will do. But what this is doing is it's letting us into Jonah's mindset. Frankly, he's looking down on people who are not him. They're not Jews. They're idolaters. And so, yes, he prays a prayer, and that prayer in a perfunctory reading might seem like, oh, yeah, Jonah's had a turnaround. But when Jonah has been redeposited onto dry land, this is not a converted Jonah whose heart has now been melted by the mercy of Yahweh. This is a Jonah who's been rescued from a dangerous situation and who will now begrudgingly and reluctantly go to Nineveh. We note at this point, Kevin J. Youngblood in his book, Jonah's God's Scandalous Mercy, says the shallowness of Jonah's, quote, repentance shapes the remainder of the story. And as we will see, perhaps surprisingly and a little bit pregnantly, you never get a sense of resolve in the book of Jonah. Jonah never gets it. You never get a sense in which you're like, aha, there's resolution. And we'll get to that in the next two weeks. The shallowness of Jonah's repentance shapes the remainder of the narrative. Now, this is a a parable that I mentioned just briefly last week. And let me just remind you of it. Matthew chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Jesus speaking these words. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. 
Okay, You'll remember this parable. Two men, Jesus says, went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, right, a religious person. The other was a tax collector, a despised person, us and them. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. That's the kernel of Jonah's prayer. I'm glad I'm not like them. Extortioners, adulterers, unjust, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. This is the very kind of promise that Jonah was making in the belly of the fish. I will do these things, promises to be good and faithful. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's a kind of primitive sincerity here, just a sort of like, I don't know what to say or how to pray some flowery, beautiful prayer, but I'm a sinner and have mercy on me. And he just beats his chest. You get a sense almost of his inability to pray this flowery, beautiful prayer that the Pharisee has prayed, similar with the sailors on board the ship. They're just like, God, have mercy on us. Yahweh, save us. Jesus went on to say at the end of that parable, I tell you, this man, that is to say the unexpected man, the non-religious man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. This is very similar to what we're seeing with Jonah. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this is an amazing quotation I came across just this week from C.S. Lewis. I'd actually read it before, but I must have forgotten it because it is so profoundly simple and amazing. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Why? Well, a proud man is always looking down on people and things. And, of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. If you find that your basic orientation to other people is a posture or an orientation of judgmentalism, it's a reasonably good indicator that you might not be in the relationship with God that you think you are. And of course, that's the very point that the book of Jonah is driving out and the very point that the parable that uh, that Jesus told was driving at. You think you're a prophet. You think when you get out of the belly of this fish, you're going to do all of these flowery, wonderful religious things. You think that you're not like that man in the case of the Pharisee. But in both cases, that perceived religiosity actually plays a trick on you, and you end up deceiving your own heart. You're so busy looking down on everybody else from your elevated and religious Seventh-day Adventist or Christian perch that Lewis makes the point, if this is your basic posture and trajectory toward people looking down on them, you can't possibly know God because the only way to know God is not to look down but like the, the, the publican to beat your breast and to just take awareness that there's something above you. Man, what a great idea. What a simple concept. If we're looking down on others, we cannot be looking up to God. The punchline of Jonah's prayer, and we mentioned the punchline of the entire book of Jonah, is this simple declaration that salvation, deliverance, belongs to Yahweh. That beautiful poem that we looked at, A, B, C, B, A, and then A, B, A, and all of those intricate structures. And when it came time for the grand and beautiful, the, 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 the refrain of Jonah's beautiful poem is, salvation belongs to God. God brings about salvation, which is really funny. Because even though Jonah can exclaim this, he will deny it in two chapters. I wonder how many of the songs that we sing with all of our enthusiasm, some of us don't sing with much enthusiasm, so you're less hypocritical than others of us. I wonder how many of our songs that we sing, we deny with our attitude and our actions. Jonah can say, salvation belongs to Yahweh, but when salvation and deliverance will come to a people that he doesn't think deserves it, he will find himself on the wrong end of that religious equation. Jonah is a man headed toward Nineveh, but he's not a converted man. He's just a religious man. Jonah is a man on an errand for God, but he is not God's man. Jonah is a man on an errand for God, but he is not God's man. God is not fooled by our busyness. He is not fooled by our errands that we run. We see this in Matthew chapter 7, don't we? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of this stuff in your name? And Jesus' response is, you did a lot of stuff. You stayed really busy, but I don't know you. Being God's man and running one of God's errands are not the same thing. 
being God's woman and singing songs about God are not the same thing. Jonah is a man, a prophet, reluctantly on a mission for God to bring a message of mercy that he himself does not fully comprehend, does not really comprehend at all. As a recipient of Yahweh's mercy, patience, and saving judgment, is Jonah ready to extend that attitude and that perspective to others? Are we? What is our basic orientation as the Seventh-day Adventist Church globally and as the Kingscliff Seventh-day Adventist Church? And if you're a visitor here today, if you count yourself as a Christian, what is the basic Christian orientation to the wider world? Is it an orientation where we find ourselves looking down judgmentally? Or is it an orientation where we find ourselves on the same ground, in the same situation, in the same boat, to, to use the language of Jonah, in the same situation, and we are all looking up in need of something? I think if we were going to be totally honest and totally candid, we would have to admit that at some significant level, the perceived posture of the Christian church toward the world is one of condemnation and judgment. Am I wrong or am I right? Our perceived posture is not one of coming alongside of people and pulling for people and rooting people on and, and hoping, hey, it's going to be all right. We can... It's a posture of why would you do such a thing? How could, you do... How could you? Jonah is unwilling or perhaps even at this stage unable to extend the mercy to others that he himself has received. My question is, is am I? Am I also, like Jonah, unable to extend a mercy to somebody else that has been extended to me? Or do I think that I am somehow deserving of God's mercy? Of course, the moment you talk about deserving, the word mercy doesn't even mean anything anymore. And all of a sudden, as a Christian church and as a local Kingscliff church, we find ourselves, if we're reading the book right, doing some serious soul searching and asking ourselves the question, what's my orientation to them? Is my orientation one that I'm a little better, a little more pious, a little more vegetarian, a little more Sabbath-keeping, a little more generous with my money, a little more whatever, whatever, whatever your pedigree is, that your posture toward others is one of, if not outright condemnation, at least a sense that you've kind of got your act together and they basically don't. Are we ready to extend this same... Like Jonah, am I merely outwardly compliant or am I truly converted? And this is a question that the good pastor cannot answer for you. This is a question that only the pastor can only answer for himself. This is the question that the book of Jonah forces us to ask. This is not mere, you know, study of structure for structure's sake, study of symmetry and poetic sophistication for the sake of it. All of those things are getting us to a point. And the point is that the book of Jonah should at some level be a mirror to us where we ask ourselves the question, am I merely outwardly compliant in some religious sense or in my innermost soul am I converted? We could be like Jonah on an errand for Yahweh and be no more converted than Jonah was. And then our fifth and final difference. Fifth and final difference is this kind of fascinating idea here and it does not come across in the version that I'm reading, the New King James Version. I'll read it for you here in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. There's no hint of it there. No hint of what? Well, this idea of an exceedingly great city, is, it's actually more subtle and more significant than just Nineveh was a big city. I'm going to suggest that the, the, the best translation of this here is that Nineveh was a great metropolis belonging to God. Now check this out. Let me try and show you why I've come to this conclusion. This is from the Tyndale Old Testament commentary by Baker, Alexander, and Waltke. They say a very important city, or a very big city, is literally a great city to God. In the light of the book's plot, they say, it is perhaps best to understand this phrase as meaning a city important to God. Nineveh, Jonah rather, go to Nineveh, a city important to me. Question, would Jonah, and for that matter the rest of Israel, thought that Nineveh was important to Yahweh? The answer is no, unequivocally no. Only perhaps in the sense of they, are in des they deserve his judgment and his unmitigated wrath. But here's this idea, Jonah, go to Nineveh, 
a city, a great city that belongs to me. Notice in Kevin Youngblood's Jonah, God's Scandalous Mercy, how they translate Jonah chapter 3, verse 3. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh as Yahweh commanded. Now Nineveh was a great metropolis belonging to God. Ooh, that's cool. Nineveh belongs to God. Can you say amen? I don't know how many of you have taken me up on my, my, my pleading invitation to listen to the sermons that were preached at the Connections Tent this last year by Pastor Stephen Merkovich. I don't know how many of you have done that. I know some of you have. But if you have not yet, go to your Facebook page, type in Connections Tent 2017, and if you can't listen to all seven of them, listen to the sermon on Babylon. And I tell you, it is a game-changing, world-rocking sermon in which Pastor Stephen basically unpacked for us this amazing command in the book of Jeremiah where God says to Jeremiah, you're in Babylon, build gardens, build houses, settle down, and pray for the shalom of Babylon. What? You mean Babylon that, that, that was responsible for the destruction of your temple and the destruction of your city and that carried, murdered tens of thousands of people and carried many away? What? God's like, settle down, stay there for a while, plant gardens, and pray and work for the shalom of Babylon. This is a very magnanimous and unexpected posture. You would think that the posture toward your captors, toward the ones who murdered your brother or your sister or your mother and who destroyed your city and your temple, your posture would be one of hostility, antagonism, and frankly, hatred. And God's command, and you go listen to the whole sermon, I'm not going to review it here, all of it, is pray for Babylon. Work for the good of Babylon. Here it's so interesting. Jonah, go to Nineveh, a city that belongs to me. And all of a sudden, Jonah's us and them world cannot accommodate an us that includes Nineveh. Like most of us, we are boxed into our us and them world. Whether it's a financial us and them, or an educational us and them, or a fashion us and them, or a racial us and them, or a career professional us and them, or a denominational us and them, or a music style us and them, or an age us and them. Most of us live in a world where us and them, and us, we, have our act together, and they don't. Because if they did, they would be a part of us. Go to Nineveh, Jonah, a great city that belongs to me. Robert Alter, in his Strong as Death is Love, a translation with commentary, translates Jonah chapter 3, verse 3 this way. And Nineveh was a great city of God's. What, this is God's city? Well, of course. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Robert Alter, in his commentary, says this preposition, le. In biblical Hebrew, including many inscriptions on pottery, seals, and the like, often means belonging to. Belonging to. That meaning makes sense in terms of the theology of the book. Nineveh, like everything else in the world, is God's possession. And thus, God is appropriately concerned about the behavior of its inhabitants. And notice these last three words, and their fate. Does God care about the Ninevites? Does God love the Ninevites? Does God want his saving message to go to the Ninevites? Yes or no? Does he want his saving message to go to the Labor Party? Does he want his saving message to go to the Liberal Party? Does he want his saving message to go to the Democrats? Does he want his saving message to go to the Republicans? Does he want his saving message to go to the blacks? Does he want his saving message to go to the homosexuals? Does God want his saving message to go to the world? It sort of seems like it. You know, these really complicated texts like John 3.16, like really difficult texts to get your mind wrapped around, for God, for God so loved the world. It's right there on the face of it. So when God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city that belongs to me, Jonah cannot get his us and them mind wrapped around and us, all of us on the ship, all of us in the belly of a fish, all of us in the belly of a fish, all of us in need of mercy and grace, all of us not looking down on others, but up at God, a great city belonging to me. And so there are the five differences. The second time, 
cry against it versus proclaim to it. Arise to flee versus arise and he went to Nineveh. From Yahweh's presence versus according to Yahweh's word and a great metropolis belonging to God. A number of textual indicators just in these first three verses of chapter three are setting us up for an unexpected outcome to this amazing book. If you're reading and you're reading carefully, you already are expecting something else. You're not, you should already, you're set up. It's a setup. Jonah's going to go to Nineveh, he's going to preach, and the rebellious, godly, religious, Jewish prophet is going to end up on the wrong side of the religious equation, and the idolatrous, pagan, them, Ninevites are going to end up on the right side of the equation. You're set up. This is a book that's supposed to challenge our basic assumptions about the nature of reality. Who really is us, and who really is them, and is there even an us and a them in God's view? For example, the idolaters, the idolatrous Gentile mariners, their sincere response to Yahweh on the ship when they respond to Yahweh is startling in the narrative and suggestive. And we'll talk about just how suggestive it is when we get there in a couple weeks. Friends, I just want to bring this verse to you today. It's a verse that you've probably heard before, you've read before, but I just want you to, to bathe your mind in the good news of this verse. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. The faithful love of the Lord... Now, that word there, faithful love, is the Hebrew word chesed, chesed. And and it's a word that's translated variously, the forgiveness, the goodness, the graciousness, the mercy, the loving kindness. It's a word that is not easily wrapped in any single English idea. It's basically the absolute loving, amazing awesomeness of Yahweh. The chesed of Yahweh never ends. Can somebody say amen other than Leon? Yes, the chesed of Yahweh never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh every morning. Every morning, God's chesed is available. His mercies are fresh every single morning. If you woke up and you breathed into your lungs and the sun rose, God's mercies are available. If the sun is risen, his mercy is available to you. Now, this is an interesting little point I want to close on, and it's a cool one. When Jesus first meets Simon, we're moving to the New Testament here, and this is cool. This is really cool. In fact, this is a really fascinating indication of just how inspired Scripture is. All of these links within links, and and the greatest proof of the inspiration of Scripture is Scripture itself. People say to me, how do you know that the Bible is really the Word of God? And I think, have you read it? Have you studied it? It, 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 it? The prima facie evidence of the reality of the inspiration of God's Word is found in the text. If, if you're relating to God's Word as you would like to the Mona Lisa or to something that you observe from afar, you might find yourself unmoved. But for those of you and those of us that find ourselves in the text, wrestling with the text, reading the text, asking questions of the text, studying the text, the proof is, so to speak, in the pudding. Just instance after instance, revelation after revelation, tie upon tie. Uh, To be honest, and I don't say this in a pious way, I feel genuinely sorry for Christian people who are not bathing themselves in Scripture. It must be a hard thing to be a Christian if you're not bathing yourself in the text. Because all you can really do is, is marshal external compliance to a cultural norm. But when you are bathing yourself in the text, when you have dug a little bit, and as we talked about, you have found a castle. Oh, you go in that castle. You live in that castle. You dwell in that castle. God's word speaks to you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The word of God is quick and powerful, living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Oh, my heart breaks for well-meaning, sincere, beautiful Christian people who don't really spend any significant or appreciable time in the text. Where are you getting your power from? If you're not in the text, there is no power, right? If it's, if it's YouTube and State of Origin, and don't get me wrong, you can, read a little, you can watch a little State of Origin, but don't watch State of Origin and not bathe yourself in the text. Look at this. This is so cool. So Jesus meets Peter, and look at what he calls him. 
Jesus looked at him and he said, you are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Simple question. What is Peter's dad's name? John. So his last name would have been Johnson. Right? If he lived in today's time, he'd be a, he'd be a Johnson. He'd be like Kevin Darnell, Kobe and the team. He'd be a, he'd be a Johnson. Peter Johnson. Okay, now watch this. John chapter 21, right at the end of the Gospel of John. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Peter Johnson. Do you love me more than these? He said, yeah, yeah, you know I love you more than these. And he said, then feed my lambs, tend my lambs. Now watch this. This is right in that pivotal section of the Gospel of Matthew. We've studied through the Gospel of Matthew, so some of you might even remember this. There's that teetering point on which the whole Gospel of Matthew hinges, and it's Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus says, who do people think I am? Who do people think I am? And they say, well, oh, man, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Elijah or one of the prophets. Some, think, some people, people think you're a lot of things, Jesus. And then Jesus says, who do you think I am? And right here, the whole Gospel of Matthew tips into the second half. Well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew chapter, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now watch this. This is cool. This is Peter that says that. You're the Christ. And watch this. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You know what Barjona means? Son of Jonah. We've already established that Peter's a Johnson. He's the son of John. And Jesus does something really subtle and really cool here. Oh, Peter, you've given the right answer. Man, you're like a son of Jonah. And I can imagine that Peter would have been like, no, no, it's, it's John, Jesus. My dad's name is John. I'm a Johnson, not a Jonason. Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, why son of Jonah? From that time, and here comes the tip. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. What's going to happen there? He's going to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. What's going to happen? He's going to be killed, and he's going to be raised again the third day. Ah, Simon, son of Jonah, is not having any of that. Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him and said, God forbid, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. That's not going to happen. Watch this. But he turned and he said to Peter, Simon Barjona. Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's interests. Simon, son of Jonah, check this out. Kevin Youngblood in his book, Jonah, God's Scandalous Mercy, says, Jesus likely created a pun, because they are very close, Giannis and Johannes, very close. Jesus very likely created a pun here based on the name of Peter's father in order to call to mind the renegade Old Testament prophet Jonah. I'm going to go a step further than Youngblood. He didn't likely do it. He certainly did it. Check this out. This is so cool. So I spent this week looking at the story of Peter and contrasting it with the story of Jonah, and it's amazing. Both of them rejected a difficult calling. Jonah, go to Nineveh. He flees to Tarshish. Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to die, and Peter's like, that's not going to happen. Both of them are hearing things they don't want to hear, and they resist it and reject it. Point of connection number one. Number two, both resisted unwelcome outcomes in those uninviting calls. As we're going to see when we get down to the repentance of Nineveh, Jonah is anything but pleased. He does not like the outcome. Peter does not like the outcome of following a Messiah that ends up on a Roman cross. So both of them will resist unwelcome outcomes. Number three, this is so cool. Both Peter and Jonah were called to cross the unthinkable barrier of Jew-Gentile. Go to Nineveh, a city that belongs to me. And God called Peter. He, he, He called Peter and he said, go to the house of one Cornelius. Number four, both had miraculous animal encounters. Whoa, what? Now, I'm just going to remind you here that the Gospels are written 800 years after the book of Jonah, 600 years, 800 years after the story of Jonah, 600 years after the writing of Jonah, okay? So Jonah had this, like, swallowed by a fish, released. Peter has this, like, crazy dream of animals walking through sheets. They both have these weird things that pivot on animals. Four more. Both saw Gentiles respond favorably to Yahweh. 
when Peter came into Cornelius' house, the Gentiles were so filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak with tongues, and Peter oversaw the baptism of Gentiles. Number six, this is so crazy. What are the chances of this? Joppa is where Peter was when he received the vision of the sheet. Go look it up, Acts 10. He was in Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house. Where was it that Jonah began his journey that was supposed to go to Nineveh, but instead he went in the opposite direction, Joppa? By the way, if you look up Joppa in the Bible, it only occurs just like, a, like three times. You got the Jonah story, you got the Peter story in Acts 9 and 10, and like one other time. Both had unexpected preaching success. When Peter stood up and preached on the day of Pentecost and when he preached in the house of Cornelius, they had no idea that there was going to be thousands of conversions. When Jonah walked into the city of Nineveh and began to preach, he had no idea that there was going to be 120,000 saved. Whether or not they were fully saved, they responded enough for God to grant them a, 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 a second chance. We're going to get to that in just a second. And this is the punchline. Both received a second opportunity. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Peter denies Jesus with crying and cursing and, and uh, with, with cursing and lying. And he gets another chance, another commission. Both received a second opportunity, and thus our sermon title, Like Father, Like Son. Both received a second opportunity. And this got me thinking, you know what? Most biblical stories are stories of second chances. Jonah is not unique in this regard. Here's a tour de force of Scripture. Adam and Eve were covered by grace and given a promised second chance. Adam and Eve. What about the Noah story? Noah built a boat so that humanity could have a what? Second chance. How about the Abraham story? Abraham and Sarah were called out of Ur so that they could have a second chance. They conspired and had Ishmael, but God gave them Isaac and a second chance. Jacob returned home after 20 years where he deceived his father Isaac. He returned home and he got, a, he got a second chance. He wrestled with God and his name was no longer Yaakov, which is deceiver. His name was now Israel, which means one who has prevailed with God. His name means you get a second chance. You get a second chance. Joseph's brothers betrayed him, but he became a second in charge in Egypt. You want to talk about a second chance at life? That's a new lease on life, my friends. Moses murdered a man, but he was given a second chance. We can go through the entire Bible. Israel refused to enter Canaan, but they received a second chance when they refused to go in. David took Bathsheba and he murdered her husband Uriah, but he received a second chance. Solomon wandered far from God. He received a second chance. Jonah fled God's presence and call, but he was given a second chance. That's what we're studying here. Israel and Judah were carried away into captivity, but they received a second chance. Let's go to the New Testament. Mary was caught in adultery, but she received a second chance. Some of the, one of these shoes is going to fit you. One of these shoes is going to fit you. Whether it's the Jacob shoe or the Noah shoe or the Mary shoe, or the, one of these shoes is going to fit you. Lazarus died and he was given a second chance. Probably that shoe doesn't fit yet. Peter denied Jesus with cursing and lying and he was given a second chance. Mark chapter 16, verses 6 to 7. I love this. When, the, when Jesus has rose from the dead and the, the ladies have come and they find there the, the, the angels at the tomb, the angel says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. See the place where they laid him. And I've always loved this. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going before you into Galilee and there you will see him as he said to you. Why and Peter? Because Peter probably didn't yet know that he had a second chance. Make sure you tell Peter too, because he's not going to think. He's going to think he blew it. Have you ever thought you blew it? And then God gave you a second chance. And Peter. And Peter. Go tell his disciples, and Peter. I love this C.S. Lewis quote. Every story of conversion is a story of blessed defeat. Jonah is on that journey, not only a journey across land and geography to a place called Nineveh, he is on a journey in his heart. He is transitioning ever so slowly and frankly painfully from mere outward compliance to inward conversion. And the book of Jonah challenges us to look long and hard in the mirror and to say, wait a minute, am I the recipient of a second chance? Of course, you're the recipient of many second chances. Amen? Amen. You're the recipient of many second chances. This is the story of Scripture. Second chance after 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 second chance. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. 
the Jonah story and the Peter story are everybody's story because we all need a second chance. This morning, we had a baptism, and Tibby got a second chance. Can you say amen? You Look at that. Andre's looking at the wave that's coming. He's terrified. I'll show you something very interesting. Notice the glasses on my face. Andre saw something that I didn't see. Look at this second baptism. Where'd the glasses go? Donated them to the ocean. That's all right. They said they're going to buy me a new pair. Just kidding. There's a baptism. These guys got a second chance. 29 years young, raised in a good Seventh-day Adventist home, went through a circuitous path. I'm not going to go into the details here. I don't want to embarrass them, but their story is no different than your story. Your story could be told in such a way that you would be hugely embarrassed, but you got a second chance. We get to look at Jonah's embarrassing story and learn, hey, wait a minute. That guy got a second chance. We get to read Peter's embarrassing story. That guy got a second chance. If Tiberius gets a second chance and Andre gets a second chance... We all get second chances. This is the story of Scripture because Yahweh is the God of second chances. We have been through Jonah's chapter, Jonah chapters 1 and 2. We are now poised to go into Jonah chapters 3 and 4. But we can't even get to Jonah chapter 3 unless the fish regurgitates Jonah. If the fish swallows Jonah, there is no second chance and there is no chapter 3 and 4. And friends, you've never been in the belly of a fish, but we have all been, and some of us might here today be, in the belly of a bish. In a difficult, awkward, uncomfortable, embarrassing, humiliating situation, perhaps known only to you and your spouse, perhaps known only to you and God but some situation that you need to be extricated from, some situation that you need to be rescued from, some situation in which you would do well to not be looking down on those around you, but up to Yahweh and say, salvation is from Yahweh. God, I need a second chance. I need another chance at this. The whole world knows they need a second chance. This is why the cover of almost every men's magazine or women's magazine, just just, the new you. Eight weeks to a new you. New year, new you. Why does everybody want a new start? Because inside of us, Christian or non-Christian, all of us know that we have at some level fallen and come short of the glory of God. And God extends His grace not only to Israel, not only to Judah, but even to Nineveh. God's second chances are for everyone. And I wonder if there's anyone here today who's in the midst right now of a significant need of a second chance. Amen. Amen. Some of you are on a second marriage. That first marriage didn't work out for you. So you got a second marriage. Some are on a third marriage. Some of you are on your second or third child, and you've, you made a lot of mistakes in that first child. Thought, let's try that again. Some of you are on your second and third churches. Some of you have been rebaptized, rebaptized. Some of you have filed bankruptcy. God can work with your second chance. He can work with where you are. He can work with second marriages. He can work with drug addicts. He can work with rebaptisms. He can even work with multiple children. God can work with your second chance. But I'm begging you, and I'm begging myself, don't just come with an outward compliance. Come with your heart. Come with your heart of hearts. And say, salvation is from Yahweh. Is there anybody here today that needs a second chance right now? Second chance. Raise your hand nice and high. Anybody right now, you're in the need of a, you need a second chance. Yeah, I need one. Father in heaven, you are the God of second chances. You know us better than we know ourselves. You love us more than we could ever love anything. You're chesed to us is immeasurable, unfathomable. And today I pray that our hearts, my heart, would be melted by that chesed, by that mercy, by that forgiveness, by that magnanimity, 
May we not doubt for a moment that if the sun has risen, your mercies are available. They are fresh. And there's a second chance waiting at the door of this day to begin anew and to begin with you. We respond to you, Yahweh, the second chance God. Let everyone say, amen.